Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 12, it says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all of those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. It's Monday in our text. In chapter 20, at the end of the chapter, you'll remember Jesus has made his way into Jerusalem. It is Sunday. He has gone to the temple. He's retreated back to Bethany. Now he has returned and it's Monday morning. Jesus has already ridden into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. Now in the temple, he's going to drive out the corrupt merchants in what has been called the cleansing of the temple. But again, this isn't the first time that Jesus has cleansed the temple. When Jesus began his ministry, there was an earlier episode of driving out the money changers. That's found in John's gospel, chapter 2, where we read about the first purification and Jesus finds people selling oxen and sheep and doves. And he drives them out of the temple. And he overturns the money tables in John chapter 2 verse 15. In that episode, Jesus told the men who were selling doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. It was at that time that the disciples remembered the scripture in Psalm 69.9. Zeal for your house, it says, has eaten me up. And at that time, the religious leaders demanded an explanation. Jesus, why are you doing what you're doing? What sign do you show us? To justify your actions. And Jesus answered and said to them. Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. In John chapter 2 verse 19. He of course was talking about the temple of his body. The religious leaders reminded Jesus. That it took 46 years to build the temple. How can you describe destroying it and then rebuilding what took 46 years to rebuild? It sounds all rather implausible, impossible. And by the way, what do you think is easier to do? To rebuild a building in three days or to bring a dead person back to life in three days? So the first cleansing marked the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This cleansing is going to mark the beginning of the end, the ending, the closing of his ministry. Jesus is doing this for several good reasons. 
not least of which is just like in other places in the gospel, Jesus declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Now he is also declaring himself to be Lord of the temple. And this should cause each and every one of us to pause for just a moment and ask ourselves a question, not only of the text, but of ourselves. Does Jesus have the right to cleanse the temple? Most of you are shaking your head yes, for good reason. When Jesus calls the temple his father's house, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer because he lays claim that it is his father's house. He, by virtue of fact, is saying that this is my house. It is my possession in verse 12. He gets to determine its purpose in verse 13. He further reserves the right of how the temple is to be used, and he asserts the right to purge it of its corruptions. So the Lord Jesus does this based on his identity, based on possession, but also based on the scripture in Isaiah 56, verse 7, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Remember, the temple is the place where God was to be worshipped. He was to be praised. It was to be a place of prayer. It was to be a place of ministry. The temple wasn't the place where God was supposed to be misrepresented or where people were to be exploited. So in this act, Jesus claims again to be the Lord of the temple, just like the New Testament tells us. Paul says that Jesus is the Lord of the church. He is the rightful head. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes that the church is God's temple. Paul writes, he says, we being many are one body, we're joined and we're fitted together, if, if you will. We're not, of course, making reference to brick or mortar or steel or aluminum, but to flesh and blood. We're talking about the body of believers who have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the church collectively is the temple. The church separately and individually constitute the temple. Paul will say that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it begins, the temple is a place absent exploitation. In verse 12 it says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. He's not driving them out in a car, by the way. He's forcing them out. He overturns the tables of money changers, the seats of those who sold doves. Now, before we continue our conversation, we, we need to know a little bit about the temple layout. The temple proper would have covered some 30 acres. The building that you're looking at and the square that you're looking at would have covered about 15 acres. On the outside of this temple, there are further things that are going on around the temple. So the temple proper 
would have been called the naos or the temple. You'll look at the large building where it points to the holy of holies. And so there's two words that are used for temple in the New Testament. The first is naos, which describes the temple proper, and then the temple precinct or the temple courtyards, hieron. When Matthew talks about Jesus coming into the temple, it says then Jesus went into the temple of God. It's using the word hieron. It's describing the courtyard area. And the temple courtyard area were four successive courtyards. There was a courtyard of the Gentiles or the nations. There was a courtyard for the women. There were a courtyard for the men. There was a courtyard for the priests. And so the courtyard of the Gentiles covered a massive area surrounding all of the other courtyards. It included what was called the stoa. If you look to my right and your left, you'll see a series of columnades, a portico, if you will. It was in that columnade or stoa where Jesus is driving out the money changers and those who bought and sold. Now, this courtyard of the Gentiles, remember, is the furthest from the Holy of Holies. There was also a high wall of separation that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women. That high wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women, there were placards posted at very distinct intervals. The placards read, if you are a Gentile, and if you go beyond this wall, your death and the, the blood of concerning your death is on your own head. In other words, it was a warning. If you cross the wall, you can expect to be put to death. And so, how in the world does all of this happen? Within the court of the Gentiles, the merchandising is taking place. And again, the simple answer is one, and there's a more nuanced answer. I'm going to suggest to you that the simple answer, why all of this kind of commercial, crass, gross commercialism was taking place, was one word and one word only. The simple word is greed. There were people who wanted to make the most amount of money in the most effective way that they possibly could. And this is one of the things that bothers me about my trips to Israel. I love Israel and I love to take trips and I love to take people and I love to visit the places that the Bible talks about. But one of the more intimidating things, if you will, is that wherever you go, there are people who try to sell you stuff. There's people who are, who are merchandising, if you will, the experience. Now, don't get me wrong. It's like Disneyland. If you're going to Disneyland, is it wrong to get souvenirs in Israel or even in Disneyland? The answer is no. When my children were very, very small, we lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we would have to travel through the airport in Albuquerque, and they would always want to buy souvenirs. And I would say, when you live there, you don't buy souvenirs. You live in Albuquerque. You don't need a souvenir of Albuquerque. When you live in Denver, you don't need souvenirs of Denver. And so 
the more nuanced answer is a little more complicated. I'm going to suggest to you that the religious leaders are using the portico as a place of merchandise because they don't really consider that place holy. After all, the Gentiles aren't exactly as holy as we would hope. And I'm going to suggest to you that because of the distance and because worshipers need animals and sacrifices and oxen and sheep and, and doves and meal and wine and oil and salt, that they figured this is the place, this is the best place. And remember, they're also going to be exchanging monies. The religious leaders and the temple authorities wouldn't accept foreign money with pagan images. <clears throat> but it was more than pagan images because the half shekel of Tyre and the shekel of Tyre contained pagan images. It had a pagan image of Zeus and it had a pagan image of Hercules and the club of Hercules. So the presence of foreign imagery isn't enough to satisfy the explanation of why they would want to exchange money. I think that there was two other things. It was weight and purity. They wanted the most amount of silver at a, at a weight that was recognized and so they would require both of the Jew and the Gentile that they needed money of sufficient weight, sufficient purity. We're not sure when all of this happened. We're not sure when the religious leaders cornered the market on the commercialism and, and when it became big business. But we know that in the time of Jesus, that is exactly what was happening. The temple and this place was supposed to be different. And so I'm going to suggest to you that it isn't just Jesus's angry with crass commercialism. It isn't just simply that Jesus is upset that, that people are being taken advantage of. The temple was the place where people came to know God. The temple was the place where there was sup supposed to be an accurate representation of God. And so it becomes a type and a picture for us as a church and for us as, a, as an individual. When people show up at church, is church supposed to be the place where you get an accurate or an inaccurate picture of God? A representation according to the Bible or a misrepresentation? But it doesn't stop there and it doesn't just simply stop with the church. You see, is church supposed to be a place where you can bring your family and your friends? Is this the place where you can, you're supposed to get hurt? Of course not. This is the place where you're supposed to pray, praise, experience comfort and hope. And so again, where can I go to get an honest understanding of God? And so Jesus will drive them out with a cleansing judgment. He does three things very quickly. He drives out all who are buying and selling. That's making merchandise. He flips over the tables of the money changers. He throws over the chairs of those who are selling the doves. Again, what's going on? They're selling things that are essential to worship. What they're selling and what they're buying is that bad in and of itself. The answer is no. What is bad is that 
it's the location. The temple, the church wasn't supposed to be the place for this kind of crass commercialism. Is Jesus angry? The answer is yes. Is he angry with those who abuse God's temple? Yes. Is he angry with those who misrepresent God? The answer is yes. Is he angry with people who exploit others in the name of religion? The answer is yes. And so what happens to them? Read it for yourself. They are driven out. They're cast out. You see, we live in a culture and a society that's reluctant to believe that God is angry about anything. That God doesn't really, isn't deeply concerned about sin. That he's not angry about injustice and exploitation. We live in a culture that celebrates sin. We live in a culture that mourns righteousness. We live in a, in a culture that seems to be blind, disconnected to injustice and indifference, to prejudice and exploitation. And so, we misrepresent God if we come to church and we even for a moment pretend to love what God hates and then hate what God loves. Charles Spurgeon told his congregation a hundred years ago, he said, it's over a hundred years actually, he said, we cannot bear sin when it is near us, we feel like a wretch chained to a rotting carcass. We groan to be free from the hateful thing. Spurgeon told his congregation in a, in a watching world that they were in a church that didn't celebrate their sin. They didn't love their sin. They hated it. And now we're forced to confess or ignore it, or redefine it, or tolerate it. He says we don't bear sin, but the truth is we do bear sin. And we don't feel like we're chained to a rotting carcass. What we feel like is taking some philosophical or theological Febreze and spraying everything around us in the hopes that the odor will go away. You know what I've noticed about dogs and cats? They have no idea how bad they smell. A dog or a cat's never come up to me and go, I'm so sorry. I know I, I know I smell bad. They have no idea. They're not deeply concerned about odor. But what's problematic is so many Christians don't seem to be deeply concerned about the odor that emanates from our heart. I use the term odor purposely. If I were to use two different words, you tell me what the difference between these words are. Odor, fragrance. Both involve smell, don't they? One welcome, 
one unwelcome. And we sometimes forget how holy God really is. And we forget just how bad our sin smells. And so we invite the Lord. We invite him to cleanse our heart. We invite him to cleanse our church. We invite Jesus to drive out those things that are unacceptable for men and women who are the temple of God. We want our church to be a place that is representative, if you will, of his love and his grace and his mercy. And of course, this church is fixed, but you, the church, are portable. And whether you like it or not, you're going to get up from your chair and you're going to go to your place of work and you're going to go to the place where you go to school and you're going to go out into the world in which you live. And since you are the church and since your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, you are going to represent represent or misrepresent God wherever you go. And Jesus, Jesus isn't happy about misrepresenting the temple. And look what he says. The temple is a place where prayer is present in verse 13. Look what it says. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of thieves. Again, the careful Bible student should say, where is that written? Why, it's in Isaiah chapter 56. The prophet Isaiah, who's preaching and teaching to the Jerusalem and to the temple and to a people who are facing judgment. In Isaiah 56, 7, we read, Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Who are the them in Isaiah 56, 7? Isaiah is revealing what God is saying, that there's going to come a time when the nations are going to come. The people are going to come. From north and south and east and west, the people of the world are going to descend upon Israel and they're going to come to Jerusalem and they're going to make their way up to Jerusalem. Why are the nations going to Jerusalem? So they can find out about God, so that they can know God, so that they can hear the gospel, so that they can discover what kind of God is God. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. This is a place of reflection. A place of meditation. A place of consideration. A place of communication. Remember what communication is. It's shared understanding. It isn't just you talking to God. It's God speaking to you. In his word. In your heart. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, the prophet Jeremiah says, quote, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. Jesus takes the scripture from Isaiah and he takes the scripture from Jeremiah and he combines both of them together and says, don't you understand what kind of a house this is? And don't you understand that God sees everything that's going on in the church? 
and that's going on inside of your heart. The house went from a place of merchandise in John chapter 2, verse 16, to a, to a den of robbers. The temple was supposed to be the place where God was worshipped, where prayer takes place. And he means this as a rebuke and as a conviction. By the way, the temple wasn't the only place where you could go to pray, but it was supposed to be a central activity of the, of the temple. I, I think it might be possible to overemphasize prayer or exaggerate prayer, prayer, but I've never been able to do it. I've never met a single person who I've, I've said to them, you know what, I think you pray too much. No, we, we laugh, but you, you probably understand. All of us, without exception, can get convicted when asked to describe our prayer life. I think it's possible, but I, I've never seen it happen. Maybe a few cross the threshold of excessive prayer, but that doesn't seem to be the case. If anything, we suffer from a lack of prayer. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, Samuel, speaking to the people, said, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. When Samuel says, I, I don't want to sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray, but he doesn't simply say that I'm going to just simply pray, but I'm going to also teach you what is good and what is right. It is prayer coupled with instruction. It's prayer that informs instruction in what is the right thing. Samuel isn't content to pray, but to also exercise spiritual, responsible leadership and discipleship to the na nation. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24, the very next sentence reads this remarkable sentence, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider the great things that he has done for you. We pray because it's the right thing to do. It says in Luke chapter 18 verse 1 where it says, Then he spoke a parable, speaking of Jesus, that men always, always ought to pray and not to give up or to lose heart. The Bible teaches that a lack of prayer is a reproach to God in Romans 14, 23. And that it's pure unbelief not to pray in Hebrews eleven six. The moment you pray, the moment that you decide to pray, the moment you say, Lord, let's pray, you're admitting that you can't and that he can. And so we pray. My hope isn't that you're going to be overwhelmed by guilt or convicted by a lack of prayer. What I'm hoping to do is to give you an exhortation that if you're praying, continue to pray. If you've ceased praying, then now is the right time to pray. Andrew Murray wrote this remarkable paragraph. He said, quote, each time before you intercede, be quiet first and worship God in his glory. Think of what he can do, 
How he delights to hear the prayers of his redeemed people. Think of your place and your privilege in Christ and then expect great things. That's exactly right. Be quiet. Worship God. Think about his glory. Delight in him. Think about your privileges. When I read that, my wife gave me something really exciting. It, it was a list that she's using in the women's Bible study. There's a book by Kathleen Grant. I think we have it in our resource room called Advancing Christ's Kingdom. And on page 79 through 81, he has this, she has this wonderful list. I don't have time to go through the whole list, but I do want to just give you some a brief, brief things that are on the list. It says, we praise our heavenly father in Christ because we're the object of his love. Romans chapter five, John three sixteen. He loves us. He's the, we're the object of his love. We're born again. John chapter one, verse 12. We're his children. We are heirs. We are chosen. We are forgiven, justified, redeemed, holy, near to God, friend of God, saved from wrath, reconciled to God, peace with God, a new creation, freed from sin, no longer condemned, alive, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And I could just go on and on and on. And when you consider those things, then you begin to pray and praise him. In James chapter 5 verse 15, it says, and the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. What is that prayer? What is that prayer of faith? Whatever it is, whatever the prayer of faith is, it can't come from a condemning heart. It comes from a heart that's been freed and remains uncondemned. So whatever the, the prayer of faith is, I've, I've made myself some notes, the prayer of faith recognizes the will of God, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, rests on the promise of Christ, John 14, 14, relies on the purposes of God, Acts chapter 4, verse 25, reckons on the power of God, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, responds to the spirit of God, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, 18, rejoices in the answers that come from the Lord. So the prayer of faith recognizes the will of God, rests on the promises of Jesus, relies on the purposes of God, reckons or counts on the power of God, responds to the spirit of God, rejoices when the answers come from God. And all of this is going to be important. Because if the temple is the place where worship takes place, if the temple is the place where the sacrifice has already been accomplished, because remember, 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 there is no sacrifice acceptable to God other than the sacrifice of Jesus, which has already taken place. And so I use this acrostic of prayer. Note what it says, P, pleads the name of Jesus, John chapter 14, verse 13, R, regards the words of Jesus, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. A, abides in the person of Jesus, John 15, 7. Y, yields to the will of Jesus, 1 John 5, 14. E, expects a fulfillment of the promise of God in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1, 20. R, remembers that there are conditions attached to the fulfillment of the promises of our experiences, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. What are those conditions? 
You get to pray whatever you want. The Bible says you get to pray whatever you want according to his will. When you pray for stuff that's inconsistent with his character, inconsistent with his will, do you think your heavenly father is more stupid than you? Imagine you had a four-year-old and the four-year-old's, please, please, I want a loaded gun. I want a loaded gun. Please give me a loaded gun. Which one of you is going to give the child a loaded gun? The one that's no longer going to be welcome in this church. Are, are, are you sort of understanding what I'm saying? Even earthly, wicked, evil parents are supposed to want what's right for their children. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter, in, in, in earlier in the gospel, when he talks about if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God give you the Holy Spirit? But think about what you're reading now. Worship and prayer. Now, the temple is also a place where ministry takes place. Look at verse 14 quickly. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Know what's happening. Then the blind and the lame ran for their lives because Jesus had gone off his rail. He was on a rampage and he was making life miserable for everybody in the temple. Is that what's happening? No. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. The Lord Jesus shows up in the temple. And when Jesus shows up in the temple, it makes perfect sense that those people who are suffering, those people who are hurt, those people who are blind, those people who are lame are going to come to him. So doesn't it make sense to you that the temple should be a place where hurting people should get to go, where people who aren't seeing clearly or hearing clearly should be able to come? Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. It isn't just simply the physical location of our church that we're talking about. Remember, in a very real sense, you're the temple of God. Doesn't it make sense to you that the spiritually blind would show up on your doorstep? Doesn't it make sense to you that those who are hard of hearing, they're not able to see goodness. They're not able to see grace. They're not able to see light. They are blind to their sinful condition. They are lame. They are unable to help themselves get to the place where they need to go. And look what it says. He heals them. And I want to point something out to you that you may be unaware of. In all of the New Testament, does Jesus heal the blind? Yes. Does he open deaf ears? Yes. Do you realize that Jesus, this is the only time, the only time, the only time recorded in the New Testament where a miracle takes place in the temple proper? Yes, Jesus heals somebody in the synagogue. He, he heals someone, a withered hand. He heals someone, a person who's demon-possessed. But it's only at this time and in this place and at this passage of Scripture that Jesus heals in the temple proper. They come to him. And some scholars have rightly pointed out that in the ancient world, particularly in the world of Jesus, the blind and the lame were usually excluded from worship. Did you know that? 
In 2 Samuel, we read this cryptic saying. It says, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, that's the earlier name for Jerusalem, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Tragically, religious leaders took that passage to mean that the blind and the lame weren't welcome in the temple proper. But nothing could be further from the truth. Were the blind and the lame forbidden? Scholars debate it. But Jesus welcomes them and heals them because he's greater than the temple. He was the expectation of the Messiah. These miracles take place within those walls. Because I want you to think about it. When Jesus shows up in the temple, there's power to heal. When Jesus shows up here, people who aren't seeing clearly and people who aren't walking correctly can experience a restoration to wholeness. Now look what it says, the temple, a place where, G, where Christ is praised. In verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and singing, Hosanna to the son of David, they were, they were overcome with joy. Oh, wait a minute, that's not what the text says. They were indignant. What? Who in the world would be angry? Can you imagine if all the children from the children's ministry just sort of marched into the sanctuary right at this moment, started singing, praise the Lord, praise Jesus. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. The, the children are singing and praising Jesus. And imagine somebody going, I'm so annoyed by that. Or imagine a person, is their sight is restored. Their capacity to walk is given back to them. There's a healing, there's a restoration that begins to take place in their life. Who, who in the world would be indignant? The word, by the way, is the Greek word agnakteo. The word ag that you hear there, there's a root word that's come in our own language. It's called agony. So this isn't a mild irritation. This is a profound disappointment. Why are they asking the children to refrain themselves? Why are they saying, children, you need to shut up. You need to no longer give your testimony concerning the messianic character of Jesus. You need to shut your mouth and pretend like the wonderful things that Jesus has done hasn't happened. The religious leaders aren't happy. Because Jesus has challenged their authority. And he's also challenged their ability to make boatloads of money. You know, say whatever you want, just so long as we can continue to make money off of people. The religious leaders are not happy that Jesus is healing the blind 
and the lame. Can you imagine? What kind of a world is that? What kind of a church is that? What kind of a Christian is that? How does Jesus respond to their indignation? Look what he says. He begins by saying, haven't you ever read? Or have you never read? Now, by the way, the religious leaders, are they the teachers of Israel? Are these the scholars, the Bible teachers? Are these the people who have devoted themselves to the scripture, to reading it, knowing it, saying it, understanding it? So Jesus begins by saying, have you never read? There is a certain indictment even in that sentence. It is, how could you not know what God has said concerning this issue to justify the children's remarks about himself. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, it says, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. In Psalm 8, 2, the enemy is the religious leaders. In Psalm 8, 2, the nursing Infants and the mouths of the babes are the ones who, unbeknownst to the so-called religious leaders, from their heart, see what is obvious. Jesus is wonderful. Jesus is remarkable. Jesus deserves praise. They should have read their Bible. They should have known their own scriptures. How is it possible that you could read so much and know so much and fail to understand the passage? So Jesus is in effect claiming that this scripture is the fulfillment of the religious leader's criticism and the children's praise. It's also an acknowledgement that God in heaven reserves the right to accept praise from whomever he wants. The baby's crying. The children are laughing. God gets to choose who can magnify him. He will receive praise from the children, but he won't receive praise from the religious leaders. He says, look, helpless, insignificant, babies, nursing babies. They're saying what you could never say. Again, think about what Jesus is saying. Jesus is insisting that the appropriate thing to do based on the worship, based on the reality of prayer and that healing is taking place in the ministry of the temple, that if any place is the place where Jesus should be prayed, Praised, Jesus should be praised in the church. What does it mean? What does that mean? What does it mean to praise Jesus? The Puritan Thomas Watson said, Praising God is one of the highest and purest acts of religion. He wrote, In prayer, we act like men. In praise, we act like angels. Unquote. We pray 
We praise. In Psalm 34, 1, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. The psalmist goes on and he says, My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble will hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. Isaiah speaks of wearing praise like a garment instead of a spirit of despair in Isaiah 61, 3. It says, put on the praise of garment. In Revelation 19, 5, it says, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great, praise him. So if in the church there is worship taking place, and there is prayer taking place, and ministry is taking place, and praise is taking place, how is it possible that we could come here and misrepresent God? By saying he's not great, he's not good, he's not kind, he's not loving. What's wrong with you? Well, I'm disappointed. What are you disappointed in? Well, the election, or this, or that, or this, or the economy, or this, or that, or this, or that. Now, now help me understand something. You're a Christian. Yes. You believe the Bible's true. Yes. You believe that there's a good God who loves you and a Jesus who sacrificed for you and saved you and cleansed you from your sin and promised you heaven. Yes. Then what do you have to be upset about? And so Jesus comes into the church and says, please don't misrepresent me. Jesus comes to you and says, please don't misrepresent me. Jesus reserves the right to be the Lord of the temple and the Lord of your heart. In our church life, in our personal life, we can look to Jesus for his cleansing power to drive out the attractions and distractions and gimmicks that crowd out worship and prayer and ministry and praise. Well, we don't have time for that. Then we need to make time. Well, what about all of this other stuff? All of that other stuff doesn't really matter. We can't afford to misrepresent God. We can't afford to misrepresent Jesus. We can't misrepresent the gospel. We're warned that God has appointed a day, a day that he will judge the world by the Lord Jesus Christ when every man will receive according to everything that he has thought and that he has done, the wicked will enter into everlasting punishment, the righteous into everlasting life. And so if, if ever there was a place, if ever there was a place that you should be able to bring someone to who says or sings, tell me all your thoughts on God. Tell me who he is or what he is or who she is. If there's a God, what's this God like? 
how do you explain the circumstance that we find ourselves in? How do we fix it? If ever there was a place where people could have a right understanding of who the Lord is, of who Jesus is, of who his love is, who his grace is, then it should be here and it should be you. I don't think we can exaggerate God's grace and his God's mercy and his God's love. But I think, I really do think that we can misrepresent his holiness and his complete, complete and utter revulsion against sin. Jesus will retain the lame and the blind and heal them. But he reserves the right to get rid of anything in your heart that doesn't belong there. He reserves the right to get rid of anything in our church that doesn't belong here. This is a place of prayer, a place of service, a place of praise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would empower each man and each woman. Lord, it's impossible not to represent you properly and to misrepresent you if we neglect what the Bible has to say about you. Lord, we pray that with balance and dignity, with humility and a profound sense of our own weakness, that, Lord, we would be willing to say what the Bible says about you, about your love, that we would be willing to say what the Bible says about our spiritual condition, that in many ways we're blind, we're unable to see, in many ways we're lame, we're unable on our own to get where we need to get. And that in many ways, we're ungrateful because we've neglected to praise you. We've neglected to thank you. We've neglected to glorify you. And so, Heavenly Father, help us to become a church that prays, a church that ministers, and a church in love with praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. Saints, you're free to stand.